Thank you for listening. My name is Rahul Soans and I am the founder of the Disruptive Business Network and the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast. In this episode, we speak with Dimitrio Zima. Dimitrio is the founder and director of Law Squared. Law Squared has been named Australia's most innovative law firm and for good reason. Dimitrio has flipped the script on how law should be practiced, putting purpose, clients and outcomes as core tenets. In this episode, we cover Dimitrio's incredible journey from a disenchanted corporate litigator to legal entrepreneur who is changing the way law is practiced. We really hope you enjoy. For more information on the podcast and our other events, please go to disruptivebusinessnetwork.com. Dimitrio, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Uh, great to great to have you uh, and great to be chatting with you. But firstly, you know we are in uh, when are we recording this? Twenty third of September. We are in the middle yep. of a very strict lockdown. Um, how are you? How are you finding it? How are you coping? Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, we kind of got out of the office early March from our end, so we've been working from home for pretty much the entire time. Obviously, as everyone else has. Uh, it's been challenging for sure, uh, and I think it's definitely tested my own leadership skills in the last uh, six months. Yeah. But uh, it's good. Uh, I, I think we're now in a rhythm, you know, uh, and just trying to all band together to see these numbers drop and uh, hopefully mm-hmm. enjoy some form of summer before, you know, hopefully a bit of a normal-ish 2021. Yes, I am looking forward to that outside dining for sure. Yeah, definitely. Any form of dining outside of my house sounds great. With, with another, with another human being, even even yeah, better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Dimitri, before we we sort of get into your career, uh, let's know like your background. Uh, where were you born? Where 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 did you come from? What's the genesis yeah, story yeah. of Dimitri? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm Melbourne born and bred. Uh, grew up in the west of Melbourne. Uh, to uh, two Italian migrant parents. Uh, I'm second generation, so uh, my parents were born here. Uh, my mm-hmm. grandparents were both born um, in Italy and came to Australia in the mid-50s. Uh, and so very much grew up in that quintessential Italian suburban lifestyle, um, which, you know, many, many fond memories of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm an only child, so, um, you know, the added... Uh, pressure if you like and think the pressure that we put on ourselves as only children to uh, mm. uh, exceed expectations and do well in school and in life and all those kind of things mm. uh, but yeah I did my primary school and high school uh, in Melbourne and then I went to La Trobe University uh, mm. studied law and international relations there uh, for what, four and a half years uh, mm. kind of embarking on a bit of a, a discovery journey of what I want to do whether it was mm. international relations or whether it was law and uh, what are we? Ten years now since graduating, uh, and it's well and truly law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so going back to your your schooling, like, what kind of student were you? Were you, were you a good student? Were you? Yeah, I was a good. Particularly uh, in high school, I was. Um, I was a you know a, a decorated student. You know, I wanted to be on every committee. I did every SRC. I became college captain. Um, you know, I yeah was wanted to be representative uh, in whatever capacity I could. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I went to a, 
uh, an independent private school and you know badges were important to us then in recognition of what we did at the school and um, mm. I kind of finished year 12 with a blazer full of badges uh, so yeah I was a pretty studious kind of student um, but more so from a social aspect you know I mm. was always a student who would be giving tours of the school for example to prospective parents and uh, students I um, mm. sat on the public relations committee and like I said became college captain so didn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time in the classroom. It would be a did okay, um, but was very much happy to assist the school and be seen as a student of go-to, um, yeah. as in when I could, yeah. Yeah, and so besides schoolwork, was there anything else that you were like really into? You know, sport or arts or, you know? Not really, I'm pretty yeah. vanilla kind of, and not very coordinated, so sport was never very good for me, although I did try mm -hmm. all the sports that I could, but otherwise, yeah, uh, really just a, uh, a good student, uh, did all my homework, mm. did all the right things, but didn't have a whole lot of hobbies outside of school uh, at that mm. time. And, you know, one of the, the blessings, if you like, of living in a, um, you know, suburban area in the kind of late 90s into 2000s meant that we could just kind of jump on our bike and ride around and do all those fun things. So, yeah, certainly yeah. lots of memories. Yeah. Awesome. So then towards the end of school, uh, you know, being the good student that you were, the, I suppose the world was your oyster. Like what, what made you pick law? Yeah. Um, I, law wasn't my first choice. Um, international relations was, uh, I really had this thing about diplomacy and politics and, uh, certainly loved both of those and thought that was where my career trajectory would go. And so I just uh, got straight into a bachelor of international relations. Uh, and then, it was actually my dad who was just like, well, maybe you should think about adding something to that. You know, how about you think about four or something else, you know? And I was just like, eh, yeah, okay. Uh, and so I ended up applying for law and international relations and did the dual degree, which I'm obviously very glad now that I did. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't my first choice. Yeah, it was uh, definitely secondary. Sure. And, and was, was your dad a lawyer? Or like what, uh, what did he do? No, my dad was an engineer. Um, okay. Yeah, he was an engineer and um, was in electricity and gas, you know, his whole career. Uh, and so, you know, kind of wise, but no, no lawyers in the family. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what did your mum do? She... Uh, my very traditional relationship. My mum was a homemaker. My dad was yeah. a worker. Um, and that was, you know, what worked for them uh, for their entire marriage. Unfortunately, my dad passed away. 2016 um but you know that was just how they uh worked and a really great marriage and a really great example i think of how that works uh, and you know there are obviously very different views around the homemaker kind of style and whether that is uh still an acceptable thing but certainly something that worked with them sure um i think well i've known you for a while now and i think one one thing that i've really been impressed with is like your work ethic, you know, if you look at, you know, Law Squared, which we'll get to, you know, you, you worked really hard to, you know, make it to what it is today. Yeah. What, what do you ascribe your work ethic to? Um, yeah, I always put my work ethic down to kind of that Italian migrant mindset, if you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, I grew up with uh, a family in business. Uh, you know, my grandparents started a business um, very soon after coming to Australia, um, in South Australia, uh, and that was uh, a, a painting business. And then they obviously moved into the wine business in about 40 years ago. Uh, and so as a child, all I ever knew around me was hard work and it was always mm -hmm. about working hard to supply for your family, to build a legacy. Um, mm -hmm. 
and good or bad, that was what I grew up with. You know, I would wake up on a Saturday morning in South Australia and I'd look for my grandmother at 6 a.m. in the morning and she'd be out in the vineyard working. Um, or I'd look for my grandfather in the afternoon and he'd be out in the vineyard working. And so this notion of working hard to create something um, has always been with me. Certainly my parents in both of their respective roles, both as parents, but just as um, you know, human beings, always really put a big effort into working hard to provide and to sustain and um, mm. whether that's for cooking or for cleaning or for you know generating an income there was always this really strong work ethic and it meant that you did whatever you had to do um, to get to the outcome to build something great uh, and that is what I grew up with and so for me I don't know any different you know people go oh you work so much it's like well actually I'm trying to build something I'm trying to create something and I know that you get out what you put in um, mm. and there is a a great legacy piece there I think that one has been given to me but also one that I hope to kind of instill which is if you can build something great it'll last for generations and um, how do you, you know, how, do, how do you find a happy balance it's a good question but uh, mm. definitely I attribute just that true Italian migrant journey and experience around what it means to establish yourself from nothing um, mm -hmm. is definitely influenced me in terms of my work ethic now. Sure and maybe just say going back to your grandparents vineyard i mean uh, mm. but i've i've only you know gone to a vineyard to drink wine um but uh, i think the feeling of working in a vineyard where you know there's grapes and then you harvest the grapes and then you turn it into wine like there's that feeling of you see that completion yeah see the end yeah yeah did, did working besides your work ethic did See what seeing that in in a vineyard did that change your view of work or what work should be or you know? uh, I think it gave me an idea about what building something meant, uh, and it mm -hmm. still gives me that. I mean, we as a you know as a family business, forty years old now, um, you know, a, a very successful business. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we have a very strong domestic market, uh, a good export market as well, uh, and a highly regarded kind of Kunawara winery. Um, mm -hmm. That didn't come just from you know having eight acres of vines uh, in the middle of Kunawara to, by chance, right? That came mm. as a result of a lot of hard work and labor. And so there is something satisfying in, you know, the product-based business where you can see it go from land to bottle to shelf to consumer. Um, mm. That's powerful uh, and mm. something that I've definitely seen uh, a lot and, you know, been a part of a lot more so in the last few years as well. Um, obviously, since my dad passed away, I've stepped into the business in a director capacity and have a much more active uh, role in the business now which is uh, a real honor and actually something that i really enjoy doing and balances me from law um <laughs> but yeah there's something you know great about being able to tangibly feel a product for sure yeah uh and then so so coming back to your uni days you studied law and international relations um was your uni experience in any way different to your schooling experience was there did you were there any experiences there that you feel uh, made you, you know, who you are now? Mm. Um, I'd say the experiences were very different. I put a lot of effort into school. Um, mm. Again, tried to be on every committee and all those kind of things. Uh, and at uni, I didn't. It was the complete opposite. I yeah. um, took a pretty laissez-faire approach. And in hindsight, maybe I should have taken it a bit more seriously. I only went to, you know, the truths that I had to and the lectures that I had to. I listened to every lecture. I transcribed every lecture. That was my way of studying. Um, but mm -hmm. I spent very little time at uni. Um, mm -hmm. 
and yeah, again, in hindsight, maybe that should have been taken a bit more different, but I approached university very different to how I approached high school, for sure. Mm. And was that uh, just a sense of freedom or, or were you exploring other things? Or? I think a sense of freedom. Uh, I was working uh, at the time. I worked in a nightclub. You know, I was doing nice. yeah. crazy hours from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. You know, four days a week. Uh, I had you know started a business with some friends uh, in the later part of my uni journey, and um, yeah, I was just more interested in things outside of learning. You know, I wanted practical experience, and I felt working was giving me that practical experience, uh, and also getting to start a business also gave me some of that practical experience. Mm. What business did you start with? Yeah, so there was a, a group of us and we kind of started a social enterprise consulting business. And the idea oh. was that we work with um, a series of corporate and large not-for-profit entities and help them transform themselves into social enterprises. Um, this was, you know, 2006, no, 2007, 2008, mm. you know, before the world of social enterprises. Uh, social mm. traders kind of were just a thing. Social Ventures Australia wasn't even a thing. Um, you know, we had a really great example in Rebecca Scott, who obviously built Street at that time. Yeah. But nobody yeah. took social enterprise seriously. Governments weren't taking it seriously. No one understood mm. this idea of, you know, for purpose, for profit notion. Mm. You know, now, well, we almost 10 years later more, um, 15 years later, we've got, you know, 20,000 plus social enterprises in Australia. Yeah. Um, we did some really great work um, with the Salvation Army and World Vision at the time, but um, ultimately just didn't get mm. the runs on the board that we wanted because it just wasn't something that was accepted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you were helping them with their business models or what was, what was it? Yeah. So it was like, you know, what are different revenue streams you could bring in? Uh, you know, how could we um, help workshop with them some ways around, you know, alternative re re uh, income streams. So, for example, Salvation Army at the time uh, were building their development at 69 Burke Street, which I don't know if you know much about that building, but it has become a bit of a, a refuge center and a whole lot of different aspects and service providers now. But at the time, they had just acquired that building or just reforming that building, uh, and they decided to put a social enterprise cafe at the back. I'm actually not sure if that cafe still runs, but you know, we worked with them in terms of developing concepts around what it meant to run a cafe that will then deliver another stream of income for the business. So, um, yeah, it's cool projects like that. Yeah. And I suppose that's another thing I've noticed about you since I've known you is that you do have a social conscience um, in that, you know, the law squared and the other firm you started after, you know, the, oh, sorry, before law squared, it was, it was, it's all very purpose driven. Yeah. Purpose -driven, yeah. Um, what, what, where did that come from? What, what do you ascribe that to? Um, it's a good question. I really thought about it. Uh, I've always been actively involved in the not-for-profit space. Uh, certainly post-university, I became quite involved with um, the multi-faith, multicultural kind of youth network that was developed by Steve Brax, the Victorian government at the time. Uh, and Brax, as Premier, decided that he needed more of a younger voice, uh, but also need to see greater um, collaboration and cohesion amongst multicultural youth and bringing an element of faith in that. So how do we bring a whole bunch of people from different cultures and faiths to kind of work together as a bit of a working group and an advisory group, group to the government? Um, and that was probably my first taste, if you like, at um, working in this space and what we now know as a not-for-profit space, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and always kind of wanted to better myself. Again, I come from a very fortunate background where, you know, my grandparents both lots came to Australia from nothing and really 
did whatever they could do to grow themselves and their families, but also people around them um, and put themselves in a position to continue to do that. Uh, and I feel like I took a lot of that as well, which is, you know, if I'm in a position that I'm in, I want to be able to help others go through that journey um, as well and offer insights wherever I can. Uh, and so over the last, you know, kind of 10, 15 years, I've sat on a number of boards. I still sit on a number of boards and, uh, you know, certainly acting in an advisory capacity um, to the sector uh, quite a bit. Yep. Um, and then so through uni, you, you finished uni with a law degree in an international relations degree. What was your first job after, after that, after uni? Yeah, so I traveled overseas. I nice. uh, finished <laughs> in June 2010 and um, I managed to secure an internship to, with the Australian Embassy to the Holy See uh, in Italy. Uh, post uni. So my plan was to go across to Italy, do a bit of travel and then finish off my internship. And um, Tim Fisher was the ambassador at the time. So Tim Fisher, former um, Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, Minister for Trade uh, and a very decorated politician, um, was the ambassador at the time and had agreed to have me as an intern at the embassy for a period of time, which was an absolutely remarkable experience. And uh, I did that for the latter part of 2010 uh, before coming back to Australia and deciding two things. One, that I would apply for the DPAP program um, mm-hmm. to join their grad program. Uh, and two, which was in the meantime, apply to do my traineeship or articles uh, in law and get my ticket, if you like, to law just in case I ever needed to rely on it. So, um, I, yeah, like I said, spent six months overseas, came back and uh, applied for DPAP, didn't get in uh, to mm-hmm. DPAP. Uh, was very disheartened by that process and probably mm-hmm. arrogantly thought that I would have a better chance than what I did. Uh, <laughs> and then finished my articles and decided to apply for law jobs. And I got my mm-hmm. first job as an insurance litigation lawyer um, later that year after doing my six months uh, traineeship and stayed in law ever since. I never applied for DFAT ever again and you kind of mm-hmm. shut off the idea of diplomacy and politics uh, and really have just focused on law. Yep. And then did you stay with that? as an insurance litigator for a while or did you bounce around? Uh, I stayed there for just shy of three years uh, and uh, moved within that firm, moved into some teams uh, in various parts of insurance litigation, but still insurance litigation and decided just shy of three years, I didn't want to be an insurance lawyer. You know, I didn't want to be known as the insurance lawyer. And if I stayed on that trajectory, that's where I was going to end up. and so I decided to look for another role and ended up at another firm uh, in commercial litigation. So not a whole lot different to uh, insurance mm-hmm. litigation. Um, before really coming to a realization about a year and a half, two years into it, that just the traditional way of practicing law wasn't for me. Uh, and mm-hmm. I wanted to find and create a better way for lawyers to practice. So mm-hmm. it was less about the client experience and it was about the lawyer experience. And there's so many lawyers leaving the profession, so many disgruntled mm-hmm. lawyers. Um, obviously quite a lot of negative mental health uh, in lawyers and mm-hmm. just something needed to change. And I was a pretty disgruntled lawyer myself and mm-hmm. kind of ultimately made that call in, you know, partway through 2015 that it was time to jump out and do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about that for a bit? Talk about the profession of law, because it seems to be probably the only profession that's in equal parts reviled and in equal parts exalted. You know, it's, yeah. um, Lawyers can be heroes, like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just passed away. Like, she's been, um, you know, exalted for the right reasons. But then 
there's a thousand lawyer jokes, you know, and lawyers are seen as <laughs> so I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you speak to why that is? Yeah, I mean, I think lawyers are kind of known for three things. One, for being expensive, inefficient, and bad communicators. And as a result, like you said, there are so many bad lawyer jokes because we've had so many members of the profession, unfortunately, over the last hundred odd years, just mm. kind of brought the system uh, and not necessarily give their whole selves to the profession. Uh, and seek financial gain ultimately, which has led to, I think, a demise in the credibility of the legal profession. Over the last, you know, particularly maybe the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a big spotlight on the financial model of law firms and the way that law firms charge and the way that law firms measure their employees. Mm -hmm. In my view, is fundamentally flawed. Um, it works in a big law firm when you can have a leverage model of 10 people work on a matter charging out various rates from, you know, $1,000 an hour to $250 an hour. Mm -hmm. But the client is not getting an outcome. They're getting time. Uh, mm -hmm. And clients don't want time. They want an outcome. And so as lawyers, we're not very good at focusing on what an outcome is that a client wants. What we are good at is working out how long something's going to take and what is our financial recognition for taking that long to get there. And how does that assist us in our future? in terms of going up the buying chain in a law firm. Mm -hmm. And, and there, is a, there is a clash of the titans there because what the client's interests are and what our own interests are um, doesn't necessarily align. And so what I identified as a lawyer is that we are not always um, putting the client first in that scenario because mm -hmm. if something takes an hour, but it could have taken three hours, uh, mm -hmm. or if I'm rewarded for my inefficiency because the greater I bill, the greater I look, then there is, you know, there's something wrong there. And so I really felt that we had to be, one, purpose-driven, two, really focus on outcomes. You know, a client comes to us for an outcome and they will pay for that outcome. They don't care if it takes me an hour, three hours, five days, 10 days. They just want the outcome. And so how do we flip the business model of law to focus on those outcomes rather than the time it takes us to deliver those outcomes? Mm -hmm. And really that's what, you know, I think we've managed to do at Law Squared and do it quite well. Uh, and other firms are slowly trying to change their own models in order mm. to not replicate that, but come along this journey. And I'm all for more firms jumping on this mm. journey of not measuring their people based on time, but also not charging their clients based on time. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can go back to, say, the experience of, say, lawyers in a traditional law firm. Uh, like, I've, I've known a couple and... You know, it, it's it's not a pleasant experience, you know, working in a law firm. I'm, I'm not a lawyer myself, so I'm just judging from other people's yeah. views. Um, and a lot of them are, like yourself, very high achievers, you know, did well right through school to through university. But then they're stuck in this, um, in the system. Yeah. And just, I suppose, going back to the question around work ethic, do you feel that in this situation, having a strong work ethic could work against you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, yeah. from both my experiences uh, at law firms, uh, it worked against me because um, mm. I was somebody who was identified as would get work done and therefore load up the person who gets the work done, who will charge at a certain rate in order to increase the value, not only to the business, but also of what they bring to um, mm. the firm. So 
Um, there is definitely a, um, a, a mix match there, unfortunately. Uh, but that is what drives some lawyers because some lawyers drive on that success of achieving their billable targets, exceeding their billable targets, and then having a good case to say, well, I deserve to move up that buying chain. I deserve to go from associate to senior associate, senior associate to, to partner, and then ultimately to equity partner because mm. that is what we are taught is success. We are taught success mm. is meeting and exceeding those budgets and those targets and climbing the ladder from a hierarchical perspective um, is what is successful as a lawyer. And, and I've spoken a lot about why I feel that isn't right and why that does have all the negative impacts and why we do have burnout in the profession and why we do lose people in the profession because that mentality is not healthy. It's not sustainable. Um, and actually it's not what people want. Um, so well, we need to change that because unfortunately law schools still teach you that what it means to be a lawyer is to get a job at one of these top tier law firms is to become a partner at one of these top tier law firms. It doesn't teach you about all these things we're now seeing around practicing mindfulness, focusing mm -hmm. on outcomes. What does a client actually want? It's not about pushing your own agenda to become better and climb you know, the ladder. Then it is about mm -hmm. what does the client engage you for and what does the client want? And that needs to be your focus. Sure. Um, and this might be an odd question, but do you see yourself as an as an ambitious person? Uh, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. Ambitious. So, I suppose the question is working in the law firm. That how did you, I suppose, tame that ambition to not get stuck in that in that system of you know, okay, I, I want to become partner one day, to then extricating yourself and you know. Yeah, yeah, I was stuck something. in that system. Yeah, yeah, and I was completely stuck in it. My mindset was completely wrong. Um, mm. You know, when I negotiated to move from one firm to the other, my key point of negotiation was I wanted a title change. I wanted to be recognised as an associate. Like, it's just mm. this weird, and it's difficult to describe. As you know, why was that my motive? Why did I want recognition as having climbed that ladder to make a jump? It wasn't the salary. I was happy for the salary to be the same, but I wanted the world to know that I was moving up the ladder and that was important to me. And we see it a lot and it's important to a lot of people. You know, Law Squared now has removed all titles within the business. So we don't have associate, senior associate partners. We just have, you're a commercial lawyer or you're a litigation lawyer. And it's amazing how many people we meet and potential candidates also who just refuse to even conceptualize the fact that they could jump a firm and lose their title. It is almost what is important to them because it has been their identity. Um, and that's where I think there's a bit of a, a mix match. And so whilst I was on that journey, I also realized that I wasn't happy. You know, here I was just working 60, 70 hours a week to make money for firms um, and you know, clients not necessarily getting the outcome based on what we were charging them, still getting the outcome, but, you know, being charged absolutely for it. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilled. I was just merely working and going through the efforts. And we see so many lawyers like, oh, to get better once I get to the next level. Once I become partner, it'd be easier. Mm -hmm. But once you become partner, you're then still stuck in this. You have greater responsibility, greater billable targets to meet. You know, you've got other lawyers to consider as part of your, your remit. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we have what we call, you know, resentment attrition. Because mm -hmm. once we have lawyers like myself who then become partners, like, actually, well, you know, as I was a junior, I got to, make, to do all this crap work. I'm going to make the next junior do it. They're going to earn their stripes as well. And so mm -hmm. for years and years, we have this resentment attrition in law firms, uh, as opposed to it getting better, it's getting worse and worse mm -hmm. because we're not learning from the mistakes, I think. 
Uh, and that's what I process troubled me and what ultimately lead me to go, hold on, I'm not happy in this. There has to be a better way. Clients mm. want a better way. They're seeking a more cost certain uh, and more greater engagement with their lawyers that isn't based on money. And I know lawyers are also unhappy. So how do we try and find a happy medium? Mm-hmm. Amazing. So then, so what was the process of you going, okay, I've had enough of this. I need to start something else. Uh, how did that, what were the steps that you took to, to do that? Right. Yeah, well, it's about developing what it was that I wanted to create. You know, what were the yeah. elements of a firm that I didn't like? What were the elements of a law firm that I did like? Uh, and how do you find that balance to create something new? Um, mm. For me, it was a risk, right? I mean, you know, I was a 28-year-old uh, lawyer. I wasn't a 35, 40, 50-year-old lawyer. Um, and I had some great mentors, as you know, uh, through that process. And uh, ultimately, after one initial bold start, you know, I decided that Law Squared what was, was going to be what I wanted it to be, uh, be a law firm for the future and a law firm for lawyers. Um, and then clients would follow for that. And so when I put Law Squared together, it was really about who do I want to work with? What do I want to be known for? And let's just see what happens. And like I said, I was 28 when that happened. And I just put myself in a co-working space and started working with other people in that space. You know, and I had no real business plan or I had a business plan, but there was no growth strategy at that point. It was just see who will give you some work. And it was, you know, you and I met those days working at Inspire 9 and, you know, all those other co-working spaces that I just door knocked. And I said, hey, I'm here. I'm a lawyer. You know, I've had a number of businesses myself. I've had some exits. I've had some failings. I want to share some of these journeys with other startup founders as they go through their own journey and help them through the legal process. And, you know, I'm entirely grateful for all those co-working spaces at the time who gave me that airtime, you know, put me in front of 10, 20, five, three people at a time. And we ran <laughs> workshops and seminars and, you know, we did everything from running a session on shareholders agreements to what is important of a privacy policy. And it was, very you know kind of low level stuff if you like um but so important to um what businesses need at that time and for me it was about adding value how do i add value to an ecosystem that doesn't really know me and i don't really know it but i know that it's something they want to be part of um and you know by just putting that effort in here we are kind of four years later and the business has evolved so much um, from early stage startup work to now working with corporates all across the country and multinational businesses, uh, all from that philosophy of giving value before asking for anything else. No, I think, yeah, that's the growth has been extraordinary, but, but going back to, I suppose, the first days when you were, I suppose, uh, you know, mingling with the riffraff such as myself and, you know, co-working spaces <laughs> uh, um, like that would have taken an extraordinary I suppose mindset shift from working where in a commercial litigation law firm you know on your way to becoming partner to going you know forget the corner office I'm going to go to this grubby co-working space and yeah. start there yeah how how did you was that a how, how did you manage that process that process of changing your mindset yeah i mean i'm pretty risk you know like risk lawyers are traditionally risk adverse and uh, Mm. i have a different approach to risk than what most lawyers do which arguably is why i uh, have done what i did and for me i had sold a you know kind of a share in technology business in 2015 so i had some Mm. capital there i probably had Mm. some of that more confidence if you like in that i knew that i could sustain myself for six or so months um 
if I needed to. And I just, having been through that process as a startup founder, I just knew that there wasn't that support. And so it was challenging. I mean, I am a pretty outgoing person, but you know, walking into somewhere like Inspire9 for the first time and trying to find a community manager and be like, hey, I'm Demetra, you've never heard of me before, uh, but this is kind of what I want to do. Can you give me an hour with your members? You know, And that took courage and guts and something that I'd never done before. And I kind of looked back and go, yeah, well done for just having the kind of effort to do that and reach out. And as you know, the co-working space in Melbourne has changed so much over the last kind of five years. At that mm-hmm. time, there really was three or four co-working spaces. Uh, and, you know, I had gone to all of them and now there are literally hundreds. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, courage, determination, don't know where it came from, to be honest. But it was a desire to add value. It was how mm-hmm. can I work with as many people? And, you know, there was times that I'd go to a co-working space, there'd be one person sitting in the room. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, oh, we don't have to do this. You don't want to. It's like, no, nah, if you get something out of it, let's just do it anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like we'd go to a room, you know, full of 10, 20, 30, 100 people who were keen to learn about law in their startups. Most people hated the idea of law in their startups and didn't want to deal with a lawyer. Um, but it was slowly breaking down those barriers and uh, showing people that there was a human side to law, showing people it didn't have to be complex and scary and pay tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and it was giving some real experience. You know, I've been through this. I've raised money. I've liquidated a business. I've sold a business. Let me help you through this journey as well. Uh, and that definitely, that experience is definitely what got me through. Yeah. I mean, if I can share a quick anecdote with you, I heard this story yeah. of, uh, you know, Sting and the police when they were first breaking into the the US market. They play gigs. Yeah. And, you know, like what you said, sometimes at the gigs, there'd be three or four people. And at those times, a lot of them thought, you know, let's just not do the gig. There's only three people in the audience. But they kept playing their hearts out. And then it turns out one of the three members in the audience was this really famous radio DJ who just happened to be there. Yeah. And then he, then he put them on the map. Yeah. So anyway, it, it reminded me of what you were doing at Inspire9. Um, to be honest, I still get people now who reach out every so often and be like, hey, you won't remember me, but I came to a talk you did three years ago. Like, mm. And it's just remarkable as to who still remembers some of those things and kind of comes out and says, no, well, like, you know, now that I'm in that position, you know, I want to reach out to you. And that's what my philosophy was all about. It was like, let's just add as much value. If I can offer 100 businesses some value and three of them come back to me, it's three more people that are going to remember who I was, what I'm trying, mm. what I'm trying to do, what I stand for. Um, and hopefully they'll come back and, you know, we have seen so much success off the back of just adding value. And yes, we've gone up the buying chain in terms of the type of clients, but the philosophy here has always been the same. We will always continue to add value to clients and their businesses before asking for anything in return. And it's one thing again, that lawyers have not been good at because mm. they're measured on time. So if I yeah. spend three hours at Inspire 9 as a junior lawyer, how do I go back to the office and record three hours of time that I can't bill? You know, mm-hmm. I put under my marketing kind of code, but then I can only do that every so often. And so mm-hmm. there is a disconnect there. Whereas I was fortunate I didn't have any of those constraints. And so I could add as much time and value as I wanted to those spaces and entirely grateful that I did. Mm. And so then you start, so then things start to build up and you start law squared. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose before that, was there 
a a failure that uh, kind of defined you? Was there something that that at the time felt like the end of the world, but then you come out of it and go, oh, wow, that actually taught me so much? Um, there's a few. I mean, I had some business failures, which caught me a lot. Um, you know, business failures with other people um, taught me a lot. And going into the business with the wrong mindset taught me a lot. Um, you know, I started a number of businesses where the end game was money. You know, I just wanted to make enough money to get me out of law because I hated being a lawyer so much. Uh, and all those experiences taught me that you need purpose, you need passion, and you need to really love what you're doing because if you're going to be working 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week for it, then it needs mm. to be more than money that drives you because you're not going to make the money. You know, mm. It's going to take years and years and years to even get to that point where you feel like you are making something that is sustainable. Um, there's no doubt all of those experiences absolutely culminated to me being completely passionate about changing the way that the legal industry is framed, changing the story, changing the conversation that people are having about lawyers and stop telling the bad jokes around the dinner table around, mm. you know, a lawyer charging you an arm and a leg just for a letter. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's no doubt that that was kind of instrumental, those experiences to lead to what we now have in Law Square. Mm -hmm. um, so now, You've got how, how many employees? There's us? 20 of us. Yeah. 20 of us now. Yeah. Um, I want to touch on leadership. So it, it seems that throughout your schooling, throughout your uni, you were a leader, like you were school captain. You know. um, would you say that leadership was something you were born with or is it something that you've had to develop over? Uh. I think it's something that I've had to develop. It's something that I've always been interested in. Um, mm. I don't think you can ever say you're born with leadership skills, but you can certainly have the drive and desire to become a leader and to help other people see better in themselves and to create something great. And I think I've always been that kind of person who has wanted to create something, has wanted to be along this journey and have other people with me to create something uh, and also to help others as well. So um, I feel like I've, particularly in the last maybe 15 years through high school, Felt like that was something that I wanted to do. Um, and maybe that was a drive in terms of an interest in politics, an interest in, you know, kind of diplomacy. You know, you need a certain type of personality, I think, to get into either of those things um, because it does require you to be relatively confident in the way you articulate yourself. It requires you to think quickly on your feet and it requires you to think beyond yourself. You know, you've got to be not a selfish, introspective person. You really need to be thinking of the common good. Um, mm -hmm. when you are in those roles. And I think it's something that I am obviously always very aware of. And um, so I, I wouldn't say leadership just kind of came, it, you know, arguably just came naturally, saying that I progressed and developed and um, in my various roles of startup founder to lawyer to managing teams, um, hiring, hiring people to now mm -hmm. um, obviously Law Squared. Um, my leadership style itself has changed a lot, mm -hmm. but... It has also, you know, I think it makes me all those experiences a much better leader. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, an, an archetype for a leader? Is there someone that you look up to? Maybe someone within your circle or someone, you know, like a famous person that, that you say, okay, that's, that's the type of leader that I aspire to be? It's a good question. Um, I actually never really thought about it. I think there are lots of influential leaders in my life um, and some from the home sense, some from uh, certainly the school sense uh, and also just later in life, 
people like Tim Fisher, for example, who, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very different leader and, and a very different exertion of authority, uh, but mm-hmm. somebody who kind of carries themselves tremendously well. And I think there are very similar characteristics in all those people that I see um, as mm-hmm. key leaders, but I can't pinpoint to say that there is a, a handful of people directly who have attributed to that or who I see inspiration from, but there are a number of them collectively for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, so when starting Law Squared, were they, were they what were th- two or three values that you thought, okay, this is a new business. These are the foundation stones of that business. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I have two values generally and they are in life and in business uh, and they are trust and respect. And I say that mm-hmm. the two of them go hand in hand together. So I will always trust and respect you as a friend, as a colleague, as a client. Um, and you always trust and respect me. I hope uh, we will always start on that foundation, but the moment one of them is breached, they're both breached um, and mm-hmm. pretty hard to come back from. And, and the reason why I start with that is because I'm always about being very open, very transparent um, in all my dialogue with my team, with my clients, with my friends, with my family. Um, and I really value that trust and respectful relationship that I can always have. And so there are obviously various streams of values that come from those two, um, but they are really the two that I hold true. And, you know, mm-hmm. in every interview and if my team listen to this, they will all laugh because I always mm-hmm. bang on about the same two key principles that I find so valuable in any relationship. Um, and that is really underpinned by trust and respect. And if you can't have that both ways and always a tool of them intact, then I mm-hmm. think at least some flawed relationships. Yeah. Sure. So when you're building your team, when you're hiring people, how do you, um, I suppose, how do you interview for that? How do you judge whether a person is trustworthy or can garner that respect? Yeah, definitely. Um, We will always have a coffee test. Um, And it's not a skills test, it's a coffee test. And do I feel like you are the kind of person that can work within our business, that can fit within our business, that suits our culture within the business? And somebody that if I needed to go away for a day, I can say, I need you to run this shit for me today. and that is a really subjective test and it's a really hard one. It's often difficult when people are asking for feedback in that because you can't necessarily pinpoint what that is. And, you know, that's not to say that is the right answer in terms of some of that recruitment process, but I am somebody who puts culture above pretty much everything else, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work really hard to develop the culture that we have at Law Squared and the people that make that culture at Law Squared. Uh, and I've had my own experiences of knowing that one bad egg can actually be a bad egg and turn... Mm-hmm. 10 other eggs bad. And so I'm very fiercely protective of who it is we bring into the business and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people just don't have it, you know? So some people are really driven and motivated, but also have a sense of egotisticalness to them because they want to aspire to be the top of the chain because that's mm-hmm. what law teaches them to be. And so whilst I admire the first two of those qualities, I don't admire the third. Um, mm-hmm. people who put themselves you know, and we see certain leaders who put themselves first and don't have a whole lot of introspection then that is not somebody that I invite in a team because we do focus on collaboration um, somebody who is focused on their own goals rather than team collective goals is also not somebody that I find is the right fit for a team like ours um, mm-hmm. and again people with all these different personality and values doesn't necessarily mean they're bad it means they're suited for other types of businesses and other types of roles um, mm-hmm. and not find the kind of the values and the vision that we are trying to create at Wallsquare. Mm-hmm. I suppose a good filtering process that you have is not offering titles and not offering, you know, yeah. you're either a lawyer or you're not. A 
lot of people self-select out. Yeah, a lot of people self-select out through that process, particularly as we get more senior, right? So again, we spoke before about there is value in me becoming a senior associate to a partner. And all of a sudden, if I'm interviewing a senior associate and I say, right, will you go from senior associate to lawyer? Mm -hmm. Check out. (laughs) Um, You know, you have a lot of people who just check out and be like, this new law thing sounds cool, but I'm not losing my title. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, I think there are three things that actually motivate people. It is being financially rewarded, doing good work and working with good people. And if you can marry those three things together, then I think you're creating something pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Not everybody sees that though. And so some people, particularly high performers, and we see this a lot in lawyers, are still very much driven by their own title, by their own work. And that is what they want to go to a barbecue on a weekend and say, I'm a partner at X. Mm-hmm. That gives them a sense of I'm achieving something and I you know, am important, um, mm-hmm. which is fine. If that, if that is something that makes you feel valued and something that you measure yourself on, then I, I certainly don't have any qualms about that but it's not the kind of values that we believe in and that we follow in law squared. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, absolutely. People self-select out of that process. Yeah. Um, just changing uh, tracks for a little bit. Now, um, you know, I want to talk about AI and, you know, AI is making big headway into law. Yeah. Um, and so from where you sit, what do you see the future for lawyers, should they be worried or does AI really provide a way to make law even more meaningful for lawyers? Yeah, I, and I say this a lot, technology make, is an enabler, not a replacer. And so mm-hmm. it'll enable lawyers to be better lawyers. Um, it doesn't replace lawyers. You know, there is something, but what it does, it will teach lawyers to be more empathetic. It'll teach lawyers to be more human and it'll teach lawyers mm-hmm. to focus on relationships because it's no longer lawyers being valued for their brain. It's no longer lawyers being valued for the answer that they can provide. It will be about how do they make the client feel and what is the commercial outcome that they can give the client as a result of the information that they have. Mm-hmm. AI will give the answer, you know. Mm-hmm. Raul has run across the park, you know, when it wasn't in the laneway, you know, has he breached? The AI will tell you yes. But the delivery of that to you will be very different uh, and should mm-hmm. be you need a person to give that interpretation. Um, you also need a person to think commercially. You know, AI isn't commercial. AI will say, here's the data set, here are the rules, here is the outcome. Um, I think in time, machine learning will get better in terms of going, the outcome then has variables. We, we're not there yet. Um, but that's where we're at at the moment. I think it's going to be incumbent on lawyers to be comfortable with technology, embrace technology, particularly some key AI machine learning tools but then be able to modify the way that they practice to be better practitioners, to be that relationship, to go back to that root of trusted advisor, because it's not going to be because you have all the knowledge, because I can actually find out the knowledge from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are scared, uh, yeah. obviously, and universities are fundamentally not preparing themselves for mm-hmm. the lawyer. And there's a conversation that I have a lot with universities around how they could change the way that law school is taught um, in order to make lawyers ready for this tech-enabled world that we are about to embark on. And think about it, the legal profession has jumped leaps and bounds in the last 10 months. Like, mm-hmm. We're having e-trials now when this has been in the pipeline for years. You know? yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's happening. You know? Because of COVID. Um, because of COVID. You know, we have yeah. law firms who have to work from home. Mm-hmm. You know, 
12 months ago, if you had have said to any managing partner of most large law firms, they would have laughed at you that you would have their entire team working from home connected. Yeah. Like absolutely not allowed. Um, it's been really interesting the last few weeks uh, in Sydney uh, where we have some very big firms who are now mandating people to go back to the office. I was like, they've learned nothing during this mm-hmm. period. <laughs> um, but, you know, back to the technology piece, like it's so mm-hmm. great to see how far the, the legal profession have come in a very short period of time. And there is, they've just been dragged, you know, lawyers, mm-hmm. barristers, judges, everyone has just been dragged into this technology piece. And it's a basic technology, you know, you would laugh at some of the technology that is being used at the moment, but this is a big step. This is a huge mm-hmm. step because it's not something they've had to do before. Um, and I think, you know, the future is exciting because it'll teach lawyers to get better and be okay with, one, mm-hmm. relying on technology to give them the answer, first of all, but two, mm-hmm. making them better lawyers and seeing the opportunity to do the more exciting things rather than having to look up statute and rules to find something. Actually, technology can do that for us. Mm-hmm. So, so say if, if you were giving advice to a young law student, um, what would you, a couple of two or three things that you would tell them that this is, this is the future of law. This is what you should aim for. Yeah. Um, you know, I always say that aspiring to top tier is great and good, but it gives you a very different experience to say working at a boutique or a small firm or a technology firm. Um, the challenges the legal profession is going to face over the next kind of 10 years is remarkable. And I'm really excited by it. Um, I would be saying to law students to get better at becoming tech enabled. And what that means is doesn't, you know, proficient in word and everything else, but understanding what all the relevant tools that are available at the moment. And mm-hmm. you know, the Australian legal technology sector is relatively small and there are some great players and there are some learning ones. Pardon me, but we look overseas and actually see some really great examples of complete technologies. Mm-hmm. Understand what is the power of automation in, in law, mm-hmm. for example. And it's not form filling, you know, people mm-hmm. incorrectly go automation form filling. It's like, that's not revolutionary. There's nothing exciting about that. The third tip is around kind of opening your eyes to the experiences that are available and to not discount firms like Foursquare, for example, or others mm-hmm. as what it means to be a successful lawyer because mm-hmm. There's going to be greater opportunities, I think, in firms like ours over the next 10, 15 years than there will be in some of those larger firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose uh, this is usually the final question, is that the term meaningful work, what does that mean to you? Say that again, that last bit. The, the term meaningful work, what does oh, the meaningful mean? Work. Sorry, what does it mean for me? Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, Maybe I've been cliches. It could be something that you love, you know, and something that you're passionate about. And you're not going to love it every time. You're not going to love it every day. And, you know, I often say to my team, if you go to bed two Sunday nights in a row and you think, shit, work tomorrow. Like, but mm. it's that dread. It's not like, oh, work tomorrow. I've got to work Monday to Friday. But it's just that, like, oh, why am I doing this? Then there we need to have a conversation. And that's, yeah. I think, gives a bit of an insight into my leadership style and the way that I um, mm-hmm kind of work with my team but you know it needs to be something that still drives you and that you're passionate about that you're excited about and that you're learning and that you are adding value to and meaningful work is about combining those things and mm-hmm. one thing that i have said a lot pre-covid is work and life are one thing you've got to work out when to do them both. 
Yeah. And people always thought that was weird. It was just like, no, no, no. Well, I can be flexible working and I'll do nine to three and then, you know, mm. be flexible from three to eight and then work from eight to 12 and whatever mm. else. That's actually just you structuring how you do the two, which is life and work. Gone are the days, thanks to technology, or maybe not thanks to technology, where you can very clearly set boundaries, I think. And I think we've got to be okay with this notion that working and living are just one thing. And if I decide that I want to start at 10 o'clock and I want to go for a big walk in the morning, I want to lay in the gardens in the afternoon, or I want to not work a Friday and work on a Saturday, or I want to go to Italy and I want to work from there for three weeks, Mm-hmm. these are all things that are possible and all these are all things that I will support. Um, but you really need to find that balance and accept the fact that work and life now, because things are so accessible, are actually one thing. And I think once you've been okay, once you find that happy balance, I think that's what it means to have really meaningful work. When you are happy, when you see that happy medium, that balance between working and life, and you feel fulfilled. And like I said before, people are fulfilled by having financial recognition, working with good people and doing good work, you know, and if we can get those three married together, then I think that is the answer to me and good work. Mm, amazing. And through, through the, I suppose, the various stages in your career, you know, through all that you've achieved, have there been any resources like books and so on that have helped you along the way? Uh, a few and various different ones. And one of my favorite books this year, which mm. actually came from you, was the hard thing about hard things. Oh yeah, that's a classic. Yep. Mm-hmm. One of the best books that I've read this year, and I think I've given it to about 10 people. Uh, yeah. It was really, it really captured kind of some of my thoughts, uh, certainly pre-COVID. Uh, and you know, sometimes things are hard, you know, and you've got to make tough decisions in business and as a leader. You've got to mm-hmm. lead a team and sometimes you've got to let people go. Sometimes you've got to decide that actually that client's not the right client. Sometimes you're just trying to manage cash flow. Um, you know, and sometimes it's just hard and that's okay. And actually that book is probably one of the most in, uh, positive books that I read this year. And that is a thanks to you um, and one that I have shared very broadly. So, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Dimitri. This has been really an amazing conversation. Um, are, are there any closing thoughts? On... Uh, I think that's it. Um, you know, sometimes I'm a bit utopian in the way that I like to think that leadership and the future of law is, but I think that there is a happy medium between what we see in traditional law firms and the way they have been run over the last mm. you know, 30, 40, 50 years and to what the future of law looks like, particularly mm. for younger people, right? You know, what do 20, 30, 40 year olds of today want to see in the next 10, 15, 20 years? And I hope that we are leading the way in what that looks like in the future of law. Um, and not only for the future of law, but showing that lawyers can have this happy medium between life and work and it's not mm. one or the other. And I think, you know, besides the great work that Law Square does, I think that's the real stake in the ground. It's really about the future of law and how can this profession really change and, you know, do good in the world. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dimitri. Yeah. All right. Talk soon, buddy. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.